0: So since the pandemic, Molly, I'm trying to imagine how you're getting around San Francisco without a car.
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of walking, but I also rolled up my sleeves finally and just tuned up my bicycle, which has been so great to have.
0: I mean, this is like the moment for bicycles, right? Yeah. It's crazy. We tried to buy a bike for Cora, our eight-year-old, for her birthday a few weeks ago. No bikes. They're all gone. You can't even get a used bike. She was like devastated.
1: Yeah, it's pretty incredible how popular bikes have become.
0: You know, and it's got me thinking so much has changed in terms of how we get around cities since the pandemic hit. I mean, think about it. Folks are getting out of their cars and walking around. Streets are closed, right, for restaurants. People aren't driving to work anymore. Traffic's way down. Like, I wonder, is this a tipping point moment where, as a silver lining to COVID, we can make that transition from being a car-dependent Kind of city to the more sustainable and equitable city
1: that we really want. I like your optimism, Jim, but I'm not so sure enough is changing or that the things that are changing are really going to stick. Welcome to Technopolis, the COVID edition, where technology is still disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb.
0: And I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech
1: startups. On this episode, we'll be talking about how the pandemic has changed the way people get around cities and what changes we'll still need to make. Because right now, things really aren't looking all that great for urban mobility.
0: Hmm. Okay, tell us what you mean, Molly.
1: Okay, so like, Uber just sold its entire bicycle business to Lime, a company that is failing financially right now, traffic is actually back up and projected Mm. to get worse than ever this fall okay public transportation has been decimated
0: yeah it's true in alexandria our ridership on our bus system is down 80 percent since exactly
1: and then the folks who don't have cars who rely on the public transit system are going to be left with a bankrupt and failing system and then The folks who do have access to other modes, like bikes or scooters, don't feel safe even on the closed streets, especially black cyclists, because they never felt safe on the streets.
0: Okay, you're right. It's not all roses. Bike lanes are not going to fix all of our transportation problems. No. (laughs) I mean, there are real inequities in our transportation system that were there before COVID, Mm -hmm. and they're they're getting worse, as you pointed out. But... I still have this hope that we're at a moment where we can both make a shift away from our car-centric culture and fix the inequities in our system.
1: I hope so. And I'm really looking forward to talking with Tamika Butler. She's a bike advocate, transportation consultant, and a former civil rights lawyer. And after the break, she's gonna tell us how she thinks our cities can come out of the pandemic with more equitable transportation. And it's not all about the tech or even about the transportation.
2: So when I was a kid, um, my dad was in the military, grew up kind of all over. But from second grade until right before high school, we lived in Okinawa, Japan. And so once you were on the base, everything was there, the school, everything. So it was like a a little gated neighborhood. Um, And I just remember as a kid when I got my first mountain bike, feeling like now I can see everything. And so I just remember the sense of freedom that I always had uh, when I rode a bike, the sense of I could go places and I can do things. And then I got back into it as an adult. When I moved back to L.A., I, I remember I was driving everywhere because it's L.A. And I went into a doctor's appointment one day and I had a doctor who said, you're young you're black, you fit all the demographics, you're pre-diabetic, like you got to lose some weight, you got to get healthy. And I had a friend um, who was training for the AIDS life cycle and was like, hey, you should train for this. And so I went out and bought a a road bike with tiny tires. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm a chubby girl. This isn't going to work out. (laughs) I feel you about the road bike tires, you know, and my butt. And I was like, I don't know. And then after you know, after a few months of training, this friend decided not to do AIDS life cycle, and I did it. Um, and I I rode my bike, you know, from San Francisco to LA. And I remember wow. thinking through all of my training, like this is such a white thing to do. Like, why am I? <laughs> why like, wait? Why? Why is why? that white? It's it's just like riding up a mountain where there's not you know, where there's not infrastructure for bikes and there's cars breezing at you and you're in spandex and it's just like, why is <laughs> you this You look fun? like an idiot. Like my <laughs> wife is at brunch right now with her friends. <laughs> like, what am I, what, how am I spending my morning? And so I think, you know, that's how I felt. But it was like, I'm a competitive person. I'm an athlete. And so I'm going to do this thing. And then when I got back, the same friend who was the one who convinced me to, to train for AIDS Lifecycle, she sent me the job announcement for the Bike Coalition She was basically like, look, I live in San Francisco, where, you know, these tech buses are everywhere. And there are these young millennial, like, predominantly white folks who love bikes. And so yeah. there's this big contingency, but they haven't thought about the ramifications for gentrification and displacement are for, you know, low income folks who have been biking or how any of these transportation things impact these other social issues. And we need more folks who see those intersections to be in these positions. And so, I I applied for the job. I was very
1: surprised when I I got it. And I haven't looked back since. So since taking this job as a bike advocate in LA, you, you you've become a real kind of thought leader in the bicycling world. And you just edited a whole series of articles for bicycling magazine about biking while black and you call the bicycle a social justice tool. Can you tell us what you mean by that and give us like an example of how that works? I do think it's a social
2: justice tool, and I think it's a social justice tool because of, of what I talked about when I was a kid, because of that sense of, of freedom, yeah. that sense of being able to be mobile, to see places I might have never seen, to, to be with people I, I might not have ever been with. So part of why it, it's a social justice tool for me is because everything can be a tool for social yeah. justice. And for me, when I think about civil rights, um, you know, as as a black person who cares about these issues, I've always heard about criminal justice reform. I've always heard about um, educational segregation and reform. But few people uh say like you care about these things. You should grow up and be a planner. You should grow up and ride bikes. And the reality is is that transportation was the beginning of the civil rights movement. Whether or not you're talking about walking across the Pettus Bridge or saying nah, not today, and not getting up on a bus. And I just think we can't have conversations about economic mobility without talking about mobility. We can't have conversations about access to healthcare without talking about how how do you get there. And I think for so many low-income folks, folks of color, undocumented folks, anybody who's had barriers to being able to be mobile, um, there is something about being able to have a bike and and use that bike as as a tool for for social justice, for anti-racism, for all of those things.
0: Tamika, how, uh, bringing us maybe to the present, like how in LA where you are, have the streets changed since the pandemic? And how does that affected how people, all kinds of people, people of color, are getting around town?
2: Yeah, the, the pandemic, it's changed everything. Mm. Um, it's changed parenting it's changed it's changed our our version of of what you can do remotely um but as much as it's changed everything it's also changed nothing if that makes sense totally so i think that's why you see a lot of um disability rights advocates saying, you know, we've been asking for work from home accommodations and we've been told it's impossible. Oh, it's not impossible now. And so while everything has changed, it's changed because of who needed that change, who needed to be accommodated and not because of those who actually needed it the most. Um, And and those whose, whose livelihood really depended on it when they were asking for these things. And when I think about streets, you know, before the pandemic, if a city decided to do an open streets event, that might feel different for a person of color. And so when I go and enjoy ciclovia and have a good time Like when LA ha- shut down its streets right. pre pandemic for yeah, like bikes if, and if, stuff. If LA was gonna shut down their streets or do, you know, an open street fair and I happen to be crossing an intersection and I see a police officer just as a black person. I was always gonna have a certain reaction mm-hmm. as a black person. If I was running in a certain neighborhood too late at night, too early at night, any time of day, I might have certain certain fears and feelings that mm-hmm. other people might not have. That hasn't changed. The killing of of black people for bird watching, for taking up public space, for being in the going for a jog
0: in their neighborhood, right?
2: Right. Brother Ahmad was shot for for jogging in his neighborhood. And so when I say every everything has changed. I think what's been good to see is that when it comes to streets, Um, many places are finally starting to realize that that streets are some of the most valuable resources and especially Mm -hmm. in low-income communities and communities of color where they don't have as much access to green space. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things that we used to think were barriers, well, we can't take away parking, well, we can't do this. Oh, we can't. (laughs) Well, now that we got to keep the restaurant open, we can take away parking and we can make a parklet and we can have outdoor seating and we can have a space for community to come together. So that's great, except it, it still doesn't, if you don't layer in what's also happening in our country right now with the civil unrest, if we don't get at the root of that, that anti-blackness and racism and white supremacy, then are these changes permanent? Are we really making change for everybody, particularly our most vulnerable, particularly many of our essential workers?
0: But on the other hand, do you have hope that some of those changes, not only will they be permanent because of the pandemic— but because communities have shown, cities have shown what's possible, it's going to be harder for them to say no? Or do you think it will just go back to kind of being the same? Where the only reason things change is because a certain kind of the population got white, affected. Rich white, white
1: people
2: yeah, or, <laughs> ask yeah, for right, it.
0: Right, right, ask for it.
2: Yes. I mean, that, that's the short answer, right? But I do think there are a lot of us who, who are holding attention right now. There, it feels like there is a tipping point. When when companies are tripping over themselves to put out Black Lives Solidarity statements and and promote and hire um, folks of color, particularly women of color, particularly Black folks, particularly Black women, that is that is a feeling of hope. That is a feeling of excitement. Like this might finally be it. That this might be the tipping point. But what if it's not? Because mm-hmm. all of these people who are doing these things, all of these companies who said, well, we just can't fi- find people of color to hire. They're now magically finding them. <laughs> what? what did, why didn't they do it before? Yeah. And so I'm hopeful for the movement, but I'm a black person. So I have to be I have to be realistic about who's still in control and why they may be making decisions.
1: Yeah, we, we definitely want to talk about who's in control. But drilling down on kind of what else has changed during the pandemic. One of the things I know a lot of transportation planners are really worried about is traffic and car centric culture. And it feels like people are doubling down on cars right now, the ones who can. What do you think about what's going to happen with our car culture in America? Yeah, I I actually
2: think that's a perfect um that's a perfect like case study for this thing we were just talking about where there has been change. There have been fewer people on the roads. I think many of us who have been able to get outside, gets to some green space. It's like, yo, the air is cleaner. Yeah, the birds are singing louder. Yeah, this is like, good. This is I, li- I this like is this. Good, yeah. but if people know that. Then, there again, why wouldn't they just keep doing it? Why wouldn't yeah. the change be normal? And there's these other factors, right? People are afraid of of using transit, despite the fact that what we've seen out of early data is that in places like Seoul, it, it just hasn't proven true that by taking transit, you're going to get sick, despite having a publication saying you're very unlikely to to get COVID on an airplane, right? Like people are afraid and they're going to resort to their single occupancy vehicles. And I think the biggest piece of that is also what's going to happen with this federal funding package where a lot of transit agencies are losing money and they need federal support. And and that is in question. And yeah. if that happens, that's going to strand The folks who can't afford to say, "Well, I'm scared," so let me get in my single occupancy vehicle. So it again deserts the folks who are most in need, and many of them are essential workers.
0: Yeah, Tavik, I sit on the board of the transit agency uh, in my town, in my city, Alexandria, and when the pandemic hit, obviously huge, right, decrease like everywhere else in ridership of our of our bus system. We were very fortunate to get some federal dollars because we're in the D.C. metro area. But if the cities can't fund operations, then that's going to have a really negative impact on the folks who need the bus the most, and that's usually folks trying to get to work, essential workers, people of color, et cetera.
2: Right. Part of, part of what makes transportation sometimes difficult for people to get is, is jazzed about is because when it's working at its best, you don't notice yeah. Right? Great point. And it's 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 happening behind the scenes, but it is also this piece about transit for too long has been looked at as a luxury, not a necessity. And, and I heard somebody say on a panel the other day, and I think it's true, we all have to shift our mindset to realize that we're all transit dependent yeah. because if, if that person you're relying on to be at the grocery store checking you out, um, to be at the hospital providing services, to be doing the cleaning and the wiping down of everything so that you can go to the places you want to go, if those folks are dependent on transit, then we're all dependent on transit and well, we have to be sure. willing to invest in it.
1: This episode was brought to you by FuseCore. Cities right now need urgent help with COVID-19 recovery efforts. FuseCore partners with government agencies to facilitate that help by regularly hosting webinars to discuss and design best practices and innovative sustainable solutions in the fields of economic development, affordable housing, transportation, health care, and more. FuseCore's executive fellows are embedded with department agencies, and they're working to come out of this crisis with new human-centered public services and equitable, resilient systems. Go to FuseCore.org, that's F-U-S-E-C-O-R-P-S.org, to learn more. So one of the clients that you work with, I think, is Spin, right? The scooter startup that I've worked with as well. Right.
2: So I, I, I worked with Spen when I was at uh, Tool Design on trying to implement um, some some new equity work into some of the stuff they were doing.
1: Well, you know, I came across a study from Arizona State University recently that was serving university staff from professors down to janitorial staff about like, what how do they feel about their mobility options? And what really surprised me was They found that African American and non white Hispanic respondents were significantly more likely than white Hispanic respondents to want to try e scooters and were unhappy with existing transportation options. Yet, pre pandemic, most of the data we saw about the use of these newfangled e scooters was that it was mostly higher income white young men using them in most cities. Do you feel like the scooters and bikes are? a potentially like good solution for these communities and do you feel like the pandemic is going to maybe help these communities use that mobility option access that mobility option better? I mean, I think the potential
2: for shared mobility options or micro mobility options to to help low income communities of color has always been there the potential is is limitless if we want these micro mobility options to to meet their potential we have to be able to talk about things like cost we have to be able to talk about things like who is unbanked in our country and if i need a credit card to be able to sign up for this like yeah the potential could be there you can drop a bunch in my neighborhood but if there are certain segments of the population who are unbanked and the people who say they're transportation people who care and want to create these options don't want to talk about that intersection of the work, then will these options ever meet their potential? And so I think there has to be a willingness in the transportation space to see that transportation is certainly a prism for which we should see all of our other social justice issues. But we have to be willing to talk about them. And even if we as the as the tech startup or as the civil engineer or as the planner can't fix the problem about being unbanked, we have to be willing to acknowledge that we have to bring the people who can into the conversation. Yeah. Because that's the only way our solutions are gonna work. I mean,
1: I see so many founders say, you know, we're we can't solve all of society's inequalities. We're just gonna focus on this one transportation option that we're building and you know, like hopefully society will figure it out. But what I'm hearing you say, and I think I agree with is no, you have to figure out how your little piece of the transportation infrastructure pie is contributing to that or addressing it. Absolutely.
0: So where where's the disconnect? How much of it's on the corporate side and how much of it is the lack of the ability of the regulator, the city, the state to say, hey, tech startup, you can't just maximize profit at the expense of the vulnerable. You have to actually take this into consideration or you can't you can't do your job here in our, in our sandbox. Is there an opportunity, like a window opportunity right now to get policymakers to see things and politicians a little bit differently and to seize this moment before maybe it evaporates?
2: I mean, and, and I think that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. I hope so. Like, in my opinion, if I was a policymaker right now, I would be like, this is my moment. This is my moment to go all in. Defund the police. Tell companies, here's what you have to do. Like, here's what we want to see. We don't just want a social responsibility website. Here are the things we want to see that you're going to provide to our community and our tax base if, if you're going to operate here. But we are, we are in a country
1: where the folks in power really don't want to relinquish it. So let's talk about what structural changes need to be made and maybe can be made now with the pandemic as the excuse for making really big changes. I'm curious, like in your city, L.A., what is something that you would want L.A., Department of Transportation to do right now that would create a more equitable mobility ecosystem in L.A. five years from now?
2: Um, So we have a couple of council members who have actually put forth a motion to take policing away from the police department and give it to the department of transportation. And so like to a certain extent, right? Like there are these policies like, yes, let's give traffic stops and enforcement. Let's give to the department of transportation and let's look at that differently. People want to go back and forth over defunding the police. And I'm not really interested in that because we should, but I also think that folks should really pay attention to like what aren't we funding? And mm-hmm. and in many cities, that is infrastructure and transportation. Um, I think in in order to truly make any of the mode shifts and things that are going to make a big impact on things like climate change, I think we do need more infrastructure. But I think for infrastructure to work, there has to be as much intentional work on how do we partner with communities and how do we like provide some self determination for them to help us shape what they want to see. And that just takes more time. There has to be some some internal structural change in how we view what is important to do to get buy-in before we move a project forward.
0: Tamika, I'm really happy you brought up climate change, which won't surprise Molly. What do you have hope for uh, and ideas for what a city like LA or other cities should do to make cities greener now in a way that doesn't enable sort of the rushed return of car-centric culture. We've seen this battle in New York over open streets uh, and traffic and cars, but there's also a concern about people still need to get around via cars. And I'm just interested in how do you view this moment in the pandemic and how it relates to climate, environmental justice?
2: Yeah. I mean, so what what always surprises people when I answer these questions and I think why I've always been difficult for folks who are like very very like heavily transportation folks and why they find me a little odd and a little off <laughs> to to left-field is because many of my answers in their opinion have nothing to do with transportation. So I think if 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 we want to if we want to continue to have a positive impact on climate change and actually pay attention to science, it's investing more in transit. It is investing more in infrastructure. It is doing some of the things that are staunchly transportation-based. But I also think some of the biggest impacts would be things like canceling rent, canceling evictions. Because the reality is as housing becomes more and more like unaffordable and how housing instability becomes a bigger problem. What do people do in any major major metropolitan area? They move further out, they move further out, they move further out. Yeah. And then when your bus system that's already saying we're strapped for cash, we have to cut some of our service lines, they start to cut the service lines that are further out, that are further out. So transportation people are like, well, housing. Is it a transportation problem? It's totally a transportation problem because once the folks we need in our urban cores to do the labor can't be there unless they get in a car and drive because we haven't, we don't have the transportation systems to do it. And so for me, I think we also have to do things like think about housing affordability and how we show up in those conversations as transportation people because just because something isn't our problem, today doesn't mean that if we can't start approaching them in more intersectional ways that they won't become our problems.
1: I think it's just incredibly profound that a transportation planner would say the number one thing we need to do right now is address policing and cancel rent. And like those are going to have a far bigger impact on transportation access than anything else we could do right now.
0: Right uh thinking into the future if you're a venture capitalist right and you <laughs> could today it takes 10 years usually right if you make your investment today to get like that big return
1: and they've and got f- billions of dollars in their pockets and they've got billions
0: of dollars No, oh, but it's Tameka's the VC in this case so yeah
1: she's got billions of dollars right <laughs> right so uh what would you invest
0: in like what would you like to see others invest in that would actually improve how we get around in cities, the lives cities for feel these more communities. Assist. Yeah,
2: um, a few years ago at, a, at an award show, uh, an interviewer asked Issa Rae uh, from Insecure, Love who her. films a lot of her show, in my neighborhood, um, oh, you yeah. know what what she was looking out for, who she was rooting for, and she really caught the interviewer off guard because she said, "I'm rooting for everybody black," and that was it. If I had billions of dollars in my pocket, I would be giving it out to black and brown folks in their own communities. If I wanted to figure out how to make something not just up to ADA standards, but truly accessible for folks with disabilities, I would be finding folks with disabilities. If I wanted to know how to get the best out of our our open space and parks and gardens, I would be finding indigenous folks whose land it actually is and investing in them to reclaim that land. It is so hard to be a person of color in this country. You have to be three times as good, three times as sharp, much more on top of things. But beyond that, you have to be able to imagine a future for yourself that no one's seen for you. When my dad grew up in the projects in Omaha, Nebraska with 14 brothers and sisters and had a gun and was selling drugs on the corner just to make it, And he's now traveled the world and has two very successful daughters, one with a law degree, one with a PhD. Like he had to imagine a future for himself that everyone told him he couldn't have. And so if I was a venture capitalist, this whole lack of diversity in the space would be astonishing to me because the whole point of many of these startups is to convince people that they need something that they might not need or to fill this gap (laughs) that's there By coming up with a new solution that no one's ever thought of. And that's what folks who have experienced depression do every single day. And I think that's what's often hard. We make these investments based on what we know is the best possible investment. And to really trust those of us who don't look like the folks you're used to seeing in the boardrooms and the decision-making spaces, you have to be willing to give something and know that it might not work out. And we're willing to do that with billions of dollars when it's for like white dudes, but yeah. we're not willing to do that when it's for the brother on the corner who started his own business and is making it and has proven that he's an entrepreneur. We're just not willing to do that. And so that's what I would give my money to.
0: So the, so the, message, the message is to invest in different kinds of people because they will come up with the different kinds of solutions that are actually needed to solve real problems as opposed to what they're doing today, investing in thing, solving problems that don't need solving, as Bob likes to say, that are problems. Te- problems <laughs> yeah. check in search of problems.
2: Be be willing to to invest in people, even if they don't fit your your definition of expertise, even if they don't fit your your definition of well pedigreed, um, or or likelihood of success. I really believe in in allowing people to self determine. Like I'm going to give you money and allow you to tell me what it is you're going to do and I'm going to trust you and I'm not going to still try to use my power as the person with yeah. the money.
1: I, that's so profound because, you know, in my experience with the venture capital world, a lot, a lot of the best venture capitalists will say, I don't dictate what the founders I invest in should do. I trust the founders. They come to me with the ideas. I trust them. I give them the money. They're the visionaries. And yet they keep investing. You know, They're all kind of sheep. They keep investing in the same things. One year it's blockchain. The next year it's, I don't know, artificial intelligence. Who knows what the COVID trendy thing is going to be right now. And you're basically telling investors to do the same thing, just like actually invest in people who understand problems better than you do and actually trust them to build the solution to that. And that solution might not be blockchain or artificial intelligence. It's going to be something totally different than what you thought of. But I just question whether our existing venture capital industry will be able to do that. I mean, we clearly need better representation in venture capital as well. Right. Right.
2: And it's just yeah.
1: when our society has the benefit of the
2: doubt of trust you know, I, I gave a talk at Microsoft a few years ago, and one of the quotes that the CEO of, of Microsoft said was something around like, what makes you truly successful is, is how many times you fail. Right, and yeah. we've all heard stories of like these, yeah, sure. these, these millionaires, billionaires. They love talking about failure, right? it's a badge of honor. Who, who yeah. have had to fail, but who, like, if I am a black person and I get hired at one of these companies and I fail, not only do you come down harsher on me, but I have to carry the weight of knowing I may have messed up a chance for anybody who looks like me to ever get a job with you again are to be trusted. The so stakes are way higher for I think voters. that's also the thing, right? Like, yeah. who gets the benefit of the doubt of trust? And women understand this, and then you layer on top of women, race, or you layer on top of ability, or, or LGBT, right? Like, who gets to be trusted?
0: So, I have a way of getting in touch with the venture capital community because of my network, because of, frankly, my experience, my privilege, Right, that like somebody else who grew up where I didn't grow up who was not a white guy may not have had. So I just want to make that point because I'm not convinced is as simple as investing in different people. I feel like there's a structural change, a series of changes that have to happen.
2: Well, I think first it's because I didn't say invest in people who look different. I think I said One, I'm rooting for everybody black, so I would invest in more black people. But beyond that, I would invest in people and trust them to self-determine What they were doing, and I think that's that's the problem. If people think diversity will fix everything, because diversity doesn't fix everything, the structural change that has to be made, whether or not you're talking about venture capitalism or whether or not you're talking about government, is that there has to be a shift in power. Mm -hmm. People who have historically have have had power have to relinquish that power and give some of it to other people. And, and that is the piece that's really hard. What,
0: is that, what does that mean, though? I, I hear that a lot, and I, and I kind of get it, but I don't, like, what's the action if I want to relinquish power?
2: I, I get this question a lot when I do board retreats, and I always have an older white guy say, <laughs> so are you telling me that I should just give up my seat on the board?
1: Yeah. And what I, what I always
2: say to that person is like, yeah, sure, if you're ready to go. But <laughs> also I want you to acknowledge That is this white guy who's been on this board for a while. You got a lot of influence and you got a lot of power. So who are you mentoring? When Mm -hmm. you do leave, how are you making sure that the person who is prepared and ready to take your seat is not another person who looks just like you? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a way that I talk to them about what it looks like to relinquish power. Thank Mm -hmm. you.
0: I love that. I think that's actually extremely clear and just really helpful way of articulating what, what we have to do.
1: Well, I have a question for like, Jim is actually in a position of power. He is on the board of Alexandria's Transportation Company in Virginia. <laughs>
0: Big power player on the board <laughs> of the transit agency in the city. Yes. So in a,
1: in addition, in addition to making sure there are more black and indigenous and people of color on that board, what else should he be doing in that position of power?
2: I think that the other thing
1: for folks to do, I always talk about
2: being uh, an ally versus being an accomplice. And I think we need more accomplices. I think the difference between an ally and an accomplice is allies aren't necessarily willing to risk anything. When like you say something and then Jim says the same thing five minutes later and then you all leave the meeting and everybody's like, we're going with Jim's idea. That was really Molly's idea. Like, and there's the one guy who emails you and is like, hey, Molly, I just want to let you know. I know that was your idea. That was great. Like that's an ally an accomplice is the person who in the meeting is like, yo, 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 wait, 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 wait. That wasn't my idea. That that wasn't my idea. That was Molly's idea. Mm-hmm. And so being an accomplice means you're actually being brave. You're willing to risk something. You're willing to risk friends and jobs and prestige because you're willing to stand up. And I think that's how the gems of the world can do it.
0: I, I got to say, I I also, I don't think being an accomplice is, that t- in many cases, is taking that much risk anyway. Like, I think that's the... That's that. The reality is, there's for there's a white pl- man for sure. No, I, that's what I mean. I'm saying it's it. There's plenty to give with, not much to lose. Uh, right. in fact, I, giving is is gaining most of the time.
1: It sounds to me like the most important thing that urban planners or tech leaders can do to transform what our future is going to look like and to create a more equitable future is not to build some crazy app. It's not to, you know, close down half the streets for slow streets. It's all about power and soft power, how you wield your power, how you seed it, and the power dynamics that you facilitate, not only in boardrooms, but in your neighborhoods and your cities. And in some ways, that's obviously extraordinarily difficult. But on the other hand, so much easier than having to, you know, raise billions of dollars to build some fancy piece of infrastructure or to build some new company, right? right and so yes white supremacy and racism and anti-blackness are
2: overwhelming yeah and it's not as easy as saying let me program the next app or let me open the street but it's something that we still have to tackle we still like if if i'm not free as a queer black woman
1: like then none of us are gonna be free So we invited Tamika on the show to ask her how we might be able to use the pandemic as a catalyst to make our transportation systems more equitable in cities. And her answer was, yeah, we can do that by canceling rent and defunding the police. Yeah, that's profound, right? The transportation system is inextricable from other urban systems. Totally, More scooters and more trains are not going to fix (laughs) inequities in our transportation system. Dismantling white supremacy in our urban systems will. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I was struck in particular by what she said about being an accomplice and not just being an ally. Mm -hmm. I I think it's something that white tech founders and transportation officials really need to take to heart. We, and I include myself in that, need to take action ourselves.
1: We do. And in tech, that means we need to focus more on supporting Black entrepreneurs, because as Tamika suggested, they might just come up with different and better solutions. Yes. But in order to do that, we also need more Black investors. I was actually excited to see one of the bluish chip venture capital firms in Silicon Valley first round and others are opening up new partnership seats, seemingly to get more diversity in their boardrooms. And I also love seeing Black investors just creating spaces for themselves and funding more Black entrepreneurs with their own funds. In fact, two of my former students who just graduated from Haas are doing just that right now.
0: Well, listen, I think we also should talk about cities, right? Because transportation boards and city commissions, like the ones that I sit on, like we've got to make sure that they look like the communities that they represent. So if you are, like me, a white guy on a commission and it's all white guys, you might want to step down and make some room for somebody else.
1: And talking about representation in city leadership, one of the best ways to ensure more representation is through voting. Yes. Voting may very well be the best way to ensure that our post-pandemic future is more equitable than our pre-pandemic past. And I gotta remind folks, it's not just the president on the ballot this November. Cities and states across the country are asking people to weigh in on enormously consequential decisions on this
0: Governors, right? City council members, uh, mayors,
1: yeah. But also like in California, in California this November, we get to vote on not only how to regulate Uber and Lyft, but also whether parolees should have a right to vote. And whether to reinstate affirmative action.
0: I think it's a great call to action. Go vote and help other people in your community go vote, too. That's it for Technopolis, the COVID edition. Thank you for joining us. Until our next season, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And follow us on Twitter at Technopolis underscore pod. I'm Jim Capsis.
1: And I'm Molly Turner. Our producers and editors were Isis Madrid and Maria Muriel of Pizza Shark. Our executive producer was Stephen Lacey of Postscript Audio. Our theme music was by Copilot. Stay safe out there. And remember, wash your hands and please wear a mask.